Good morning. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a joy to be here. Uh, I do bring greetings from Mount Vernon Baptist Church, which uh, is my church home. And uh, yeah, it's the third year that I have been able to come, and I have so enjoyed getting to know Alex better and his, his wife, Jenna. And of course, we still miss Zach and Aaron and would like them back whenever you're ready to give them up. Uh, it's good to have sister relationships with other churches. Uh, that's a sweet thing to recognize as, um, even as Alex prayed for, for me, that Mount Vernon isn't alone. Uh, we don't feel alone knowing that there's churches that are just especially aware of us and thankful for us and praying for us. And uh, that's how we feel about you. And uh, I just couldn't be more thankful to see the way God is growing you in grace and in godliness. Uh, I rejoice with you in having a building. I know that the church isn't a building, but it still is nice to have a place out of the rain. And uh, God has provided for you amazingly. And back in Atlanta, when I talked to church planters, I just tell them the story about, you know, God gifting you a building. And they get very jealous. Uh, I am wanting to share with you from Acts chapter 14 this morning. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Uh, a few years ago, I saw a TED Talk, and uh, it was a video of a man, and he was dancing alone in a field, and it was quite awkward, because he is on his own, like arms flapping, dancing in this field, and all around him are people. So there's a crowd of people gathered, I guess, on picnic blankets, and they're watching him, and he's dancing, and the, the, the idea as you're watching is, well, why isn't anybody else getting up and dancing with him? Why leave him to dance alone? And then after what felt like an eternity, one other person gets up and starts to dance with him. And a few moments later, basically everyone in the crowd gets up and starts dancing as well. And I don't know exactly what the speaker of the TED Talk was trying to get at, but the idea that I walked away with is that uh, nobody wants to be alone, except for maybe one or two strange people. But for the most part, you know, we want to we be part of a movement. We, we're, we're ready to get involved if we see other people involved. Otherwise, we're probably going to remain seated. Most people don't want to be alone. For the most part, people would rather be lost in a crowd. Being alone, standing out, being rejected or mocked, well, that shouldn't be our biggest fear. The fear of missing out shouldn't be our biggest fear. FOMO, I think, is what it is. Our biggest fear should be missing out on what's true. I remember talking to a waiter about the gospel. I was in, not Atlanta, but another Bible Belt city, and uh, I was with a table with, it was a, it was a large group. There were missionaries, there were pastors, and we were having lunch together, and uh, we got into a conversation with the waiter, and it was very clear that he had very little interest in Christianity, uh, just from uh, the way he said what he said and, and what he said. And yet, I'll never forget, when he started talking about his own faith, he said, well, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And it was very strange because there was nothing about his countenance or his engagement with us 
that would lead us to believe that such a statement would come out of his mouth. And I left with this, this distinct impression that he wanted to fit in, either in his own religious family or context, I don't really know about that, or maybe even with this large group of people at lunch, he decided it was easier to fit in and say, well, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, than to stand firm in whatever truth he had, for whatever reason, come to. Well, your concern shouldn't be fitting in or being popular. You should uphold the truth, the true truth, regardless of the cost. And it's with that in mind that we go to the early church. The author is Luke, the same man who wrote the gospel that has his name. Uh, the church began in Jerusalem. Uh, the gospel quickly spread in Acts chapter 9. Paul enters the scene. The man who once persecuted the church is now the church's greatest ambassador. In Acts chapter 14, we find Paul in the midst of his first missionary journey. The church in Antioch had commissioned him and Barnabas. They traveled to the island of Cyprus. They shared the gospel there. They went to the mainland of modern-day Turkey, where they journeyed to another city named Antioch. That wasn't the city that, with the church that commissioned them. This is just another city named Antioch. Paul preached in the synagogue there. God saved many. The Jewish leaders wanted him gone. So Paul and Barnabas headed south to Iconium, and that's where they are now. Verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lysonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Paul and Barnabas continued to preach the gospel. Now, I want my church and I want your church to be congregations enraptured by the gospel even if it leads to persecution. The Greek word gospel is evangel. Right? Angel means message. It's where we get our word angel or messenger. Ev, or you, but ev is a prefix that means good. A eulogy is a good word. The evangel is the, the good news, the gospel. And that's what Paul and Barnabas preached in this city of Iconium so many years ago. This morning I have three points. First, the evangelism that works. The evangelism that works. Second, the evangelists that love. The evangelists that love. And third, the evangel that divides. So evangelism that works, evangelists that love, and the evangel that divides. And so may God use these words to enrapture us with the truth of His gospel. All right, first, the evangelism that works. Now look again at verse 1. 
Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So forced out of Antioch, Paul and Barnabas fled to Iconium, and that city, city still exists, by the way. It's called Konya. It's in Turkey. It has over two million residents. Well, once again, Paul and Barnabas, are, they start in the synagogue. Now, this is a little bit surprising because if you know what happens prior, in Acts 13, 46, we're told that they're going to be turning to the Gentiles. So just a few verses prior, we're told that the, the, the Jews really not receiving them well have led Paul to say, we're going to turn our attention to the Gentiles. But here they are back in a Jewish synagogue. So clearly, Paul, by saying he was turning to Gentiles, did not mean to imply he was going to abandon Jewish evangelism altogether. His focus, though, is shifting away from Jewish evangelism to sharing the gospel with the nations. And here he is in Iconium, a Greek city. Luke says in verse 1 that Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And it strikes me as unusual that Luke draws, draws our attention to how they spoke. They spoke in such a way, right? Luke certainly knows that salvation is in the hands of the Lord, right? In Acts 13, 48, Luke said, God is the author of salvation when he wrote, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Right? That's pretty clear. God is the author of salvation. He appoints many to eternal life, right? Luke credits the way they spoke, though, in our verses. They spoke in such a way that many came to, to saving faith. So in Acts 13, 48, Luke highlights the work of God in salvation, but in Acts 14, 1, Luke highlights the work of the evangelists. So what's going on here? Well, I'd say simply put, God appoints both the end, right, the result, the, the conversion, and he appoints the means, the, the method, right? The end result is salvation, but the means is evangelism. It's the, the words spoken by Paul and by Barnabas to a lesser degree the way they spoke those words, right? Evangelism, it's, it's required. We don't just wait around. You know, I hope God appoints someone to salvation today. No, we, we speak, so I take this to mean not only that we must share the gospel, but that we should share the gospel as well as we possibly can. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did. They spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So in that sense, in that sense, their evangelism worked. Now, I want my evangelism to work. I know salvation is in the hands of the Lord but I still want to share the gospel as effectively as I can. I know that God is glorified whenever truth is proclaimed. I know that about God. He loves it whenever His truth is proclaimed. I know that. But I want to speak in such a way that many might believe. So Luke observes something helpful in the way Paul and Barnabas spoke. And it's worth pondering what we could learn from, I'm going to focus on Paul, from Paul's evangelism. 
Now, I'm not getting what I'm about to say from our text because Luke simply says he spoke in such a way. So I want to broaden the scope a little bit and ask the question, well, Bible, do you have anything to tell me about the way that Paul spoke? Because I want to speak that way. Right? If, I had to, if I could choose, I'm going to do evangelism Aaron's way or Paul's way, I'm going to go with Paul. So how did Paul share the gospel? Right, just a few things here. One, Paul spoke with profound care. How did Paul speak? He spoke with profound care. Paul had compassion for the lost, facing the reality of many of his unbelieving Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul wrote in Romans 9-2, Romans 9-2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That was Paul's heart disposition towards Unbelievers, obviously in this case, his unbelieving Jewish friends and family. But Paul cared for people. That he wasn't merely a, a messenger. He had great compassion for people. The people that Paul spoke to were not projects to him. They weren't statistics. They weren't potential church members. They were people. They were souls and, and profound care I am sure, came out of Paul. If he could say about the, the Jews that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart about their state before the Lord, certainly that care burst forth in his proclamation of the gospel to others. Another characteristic of Paul's evangelism that deserves our attention, too, Paul spoke with great respect with great respect. I'm thinking here about the way Paul began a message to the Athenians in Acts 17. He said, I perceive in every way you are very religious. I perceive in every way you are very religious. Right? Although, speaking to the Athenians, although their religion was worthless, like what good is a religion that doesn't get you to heaven? Although their religion was worthless, Paul didn't mock them, and he didn't belittle them. He took their views seriously. He, he strove to understand them. I see in every way that you are very religious, and I think that we should too. Like our neighbors have serious beliefs. We respect them by, by getting to know what they believe, by getting to know them. I was talking in um, the interview during Sunday school uh, about uh, about my own experience coming from the north and coming to the south where there's so many people who profess faith in Christianity, but they don't really follow Jesus. And as someone who didn't grow up in the church, and now as someone who's like a full-time pastor, I mean, that can really annoy me. Like, what are you doing? Well, what good is it for me to, 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 to belittle them? Like, number one, that's ungodly. But number two, I mean, they have, they have reasons that they've landed where they are. And instead of making fun of them or mocking them, I should get to know, help me understand better why you affirm Jesus is, is, is God even, but why in these ways, it doesn't really look like he's someone you follow. I want to understand, I see that you're very religious. I could actually quote Paul. I see you're religious in every way, but help me understand why what you understand religion to be seems so different than what I understand religion to be, and yet we claim to be following the same 
God. So we should get to know people's backstory, their history, and their beliefs. And this takes time, but it's time well spent. Now another, another characteristic, uh, number three, Paul spoke with deep conviction. I'm just thinking about how did Paul speak? He spoke with deep conviction. So Paul ended his message in Antioch, uh, this is in the previous chapter, by warning his audience of God's coming judgment. It's a little bit difficult to see, but it's in verse 40 of, of, of Acts chapter 13. It's where his message <laughs> ends with beware. So that sort of is a key. If your sermon is ending with beware, you are, you are you're, you're, you're changing the topic. Now you need to wrestle with what I've just said to you. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then he quotes the prophets. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So Paul ends his sermon by saying, don't be like those that the prophet was prophesying who would, who would, who would hear all this good news, but their, their eyes would be blind and their ears would be closed to it. Don't be like that. Right? Judgment is coming. Beware. You know, Paul knew that what he was sharing really was a matter of life and death. And so I'll never forget the first time I heard the gospel because it wasn't the mechanics of the gospel that struck me. Right? The mechanics of the gospel. God, man, Christ response. What struck me was this gal who said I was going to hell. I'm not saying every time you share the gospel, you need to start with, hi, it's good to meet you. Did you know you're going to hell? I'm not saying that. But I'm simply saying what struck me was her conviction. This is a gal who really believed this mumbo-jumbo stuff. Like, she really believes there's a heaven and a hell. And so when I said to her, you know, do you think I'm going to hell? And she said, yes, I was floored by her deep conviction. I could tell she believed what she said and what she thought, that she thought what she said mattered. And so when we speak to others about Jesus, it should be clear, we aren't talking about weather, the weather. We're not talking about the next election. What we believe matters. Paul spoke with, with deep conviction. Now, let me give you one more characteristic of Paul's evangelism. Number four, Paul spoke with gospel clarity. Right, look at the end of verse 7. Notice what happened when Paul and Barnabas flee Iconium. Luke writes, they continued to preach the gospel. They continued to preach the gospel. So I'm simply trying to make it really clear that however they spoke in verse 1, they spoke in such a way, whatever that in such a way means, it includes speaking the gospel. Because Paul says at the end of our passage, they continued to speak the gospel. They were preaching that. To preach the gospel is one word, and it could be translated to evangelize. And that's what they did. They evangelized. They made the good news clear. It's important to care. It's important to show respect. It's important to have deep conviction. But it's most important to be clear gospel clarity. God made you. You did not make yourself. God made you. You have a creator. And God made you for a purpose. He made you to know Him and to love Him. He made you to worship Him. That's your job description. None of, none of you are unemployed. You have a job. 
and it is to worship the Lord who made you. But none of us do that the way that we should. Pastors don't. Church members don't. Nobody worships God the way that we should. We all rebel to various degrees and in different ways against the God who made us. And for that rebellion, because God is God, He's not man, He's holy and righteous, for our rebellion, we deserve everlasting punishment. But that's not the end of the story. God in His love sent Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus lived a perfect life. He always said what was right. He never said what was wrong. He was always loving and always gentle and always kind. And not in an annoying way. right? In a way that made you wanted to be with Him more and more. And when He went to that cross, an innocent man, because he is God in the flesh, he was able in his death to bear the sins of everyone who would ever turn and trust in him. And then to prove that everything he said was true, God raised him from the dead. And now we are called to turn from our sins and to follow him. That's the gospel. That's the the good news. That's what they did. They shared that message. And that it's in that message. That's where the power is. So when Luke says that they spoke in such a way, I yes, I am trying to talk about the importance of communicating lovingly, the, the importance of caring, the importance of having conviction. Absolutely. But let's not forget that fundamentally we're to speak in such a way that the gospel is clear. It's not muddied. It's not confusing. Make the gospel clear. Because without that gospel message, you really have nothing to give. You're like a baker with no bread. You're like a well with no water. Brothers and sisters, I know that you want to see your friends and your neighbors and your family members come to saving faith. But do you have relationships where you can show care and respect and conviction and gospel clarity with others? It is so good to share the gospel with everyone that you meet. But pray and work toward relationships that go deep and that last long. Anytime the gospel is preached, right, God is pleased. God is pleased when the gospel is preached to that waiter in that restaurant. Like, praise God for that. But let's pray for evangelism where we are demonstrating over time care and love and respect and compassion and conviction and, of course, gospel clarity. And then let's pray for conversions. Pray for evangelism that works. Right, that takes us to our, our, our second point, the evangelists that love. The evangelists that love. Look at verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, 
granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So many are coming to faith in Jesus, but the Jewish leaders are not pleased. They, in fact, they're doing all they can to undermine the evangel, right, the gospel. They stirred up Gentiles, warning them not to receive the gospel. And verse 2 says they poisoned their minds against the brothers. That's a good word picture, isn't it? They poisoned their minds. Like a poisoned mind might make you think of a water well laced with cyanide. You don't want to drink that water. Nothing good can come from it. Or maybe a, a house filled with asbestos. Like you don't really want to live there. Right? Nobody would want that. So a poisoned mind is it's barren, it's fruitless, and it's, it's really worse than that. It's deadly. And their minds had been poisoned against the brothers, specifically against the, the preaching and the teaching of the Christians in Iconium. Now, how did this happen? Now, what, did, what did these unbelieving Jews of verse 2 do? Luke doesn't tell us right here. He just says they poisoned their minds. You get, this, you get this idea that there's real opposition against Paul and Barnabas and the others in the city. But what did they, what did they do? Well, they, they probably dismissed the resurrection. We know from the Gospels that the, the, the Jews spread the rumor that, that Jesus' disciples had, had taken his dead body. So perhaps they poisoned minds by trying to present another plausible explanation for this rumor of the resurrection. They probably criticized this idea of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. And they were probably saying, are you serious? I mean, how is that just? That God's just going to forgive you because of the death of somebody else? They were probably criticizing the gospel. But however they did it, they, they poisoned people's minds. They were working hard so that people's minds were, 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 were not inclined to believe this gospel message. And, and how do Paul and Barnabas respond? Well, look again at verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. And now the Lord went on to bear witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. I don't want to talk a lot about the signs and wonders now, but it certainly didn't convince the whole city Jesus is king. We'll see that in a moment. But what I want to focus on is the fact that this, this amazing reality that Paul and Barnabas stayed for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. So maybe it's a stretch to say that Paul and Barnabas loved the people, right? But I'm simply trying to point out they stayed. Why did they stay? Right? Even as opposition mounted, they stayed. And not for a little time. It says for a long time. So I assume they did this because they loved God and they wanted to obey God's great commission. But I also assume that they loved the believers, the unbelievers, who needed to be convinced, persuaded that Jesus is Lord. They loved the baby church who needed to be built up in the faith. And so they stayed, not for a little time, for a long time. And this is love. Sometimes love is simply staying and faithfully teaching the gospel in a culture where people's minds are being poisoned to the gospel. How are minds poisoned to the gospel today? And I want to share a few examples of how today our neighbors' minds are being poisoned to the gospel and why it's so important for us to love them by staying 
and faithfully being a part of their lives. Right? One, by equating the gospel to moralism. Minds are poisoned to the gospel when the gospel is equated to moralism. Several years ago, my wife and I were out of town for a wedding. We went to a church on Sunday morning, and so much of the sermon that we heard was good. It was about mercy. The pastor spoke from Matthew 18 about the unforgiving servant. Uh, A master uh, forgave his huge debt, but this man refused to forgive a much smaller debt, and so the pastor emphasized the importance of being merciful. And that's so true. I mean, mercy is important. It's a piece of the fruit of the Spirit. But not once did this pastor clarify that our only hope of being merciful is if we ourselves have received the mercy that only comes through faith alone in Christ alone. Never once was that that simple truth uttered. You see, be merciful is not the gospel. And when the command, be merciful, is offered without any mention of the work of Christ, it becomes moralism. And that is poisonous because it leaves people thinking, if I'll go out and be merciful, well, God is going to be pleased with me, and that's just not true. Now, of course, I want to be clear, this is one sermon. Uh, Maybe the others were better. I don't know. This I do know. There is a kind of preaching that is so focused on character improvement and so lacking in Christ that it's actually poisoning people's minds to the gospel. It leads people to think they're going to heaven because they're doing good things. And that's just not, that's just not true. So we stay and we faithfully teach the gospel, recognizing that there are people around us, maybe our neighbors, whose minds have been poisoned to the truth of the gospel because they've imbibed a kind of moralism. Let me give you another example of ways that minds today are poisoned to the gospel uh, by dismissing the gospel as tyrannical, by by dismissing, by perhaps you could say equating the gospel with tyranny. So I was at a Starbucks, and the barista's T-shirt caught my attention. Uh, It had a quote on the back. Here's the quote. Don't let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly who you are. And then it had Lady Gaga. So I guess that was, I don't know if that's a Lady Gaga song or just an inspirational message from her. But it's clear, right? This message is clear. You don't need to change. Whoever you are, a Starbucks customer, whoever you are, so long as you have $5.99 for a latte, you don't need to change. You're fine the way you are. It's the height of evil to be told you need to change. Don't let anybody tell you you need to change. And that message was a part of um, a gay pride month or celebration. Well, that message, of course, is poisonous because it takes God out of the equation. You know, it's, I mean, it's almost like, you know, if your little toddlers are running around the house screaming, we don't have parents, we don't have parents. How silly is that? I mean, they're right there. They're in the living room. You know, you've got a whole, a, whole, a whole world of people, you know, we have no God. We have no, no one needs to tell us to change. And I know that me saying that loudly is like not convincing. But I'm simply trying to say it's, it's just preposterous. It's a preposterous message. 
that you weren't made and that you don't have a responsibility to live in accordance with your maker. It assumes there's no God who made us and has the right to guide us. This message from the t-shirt reminds me of what Satan said to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Don't let anyone tell you any of that fruit in the garden is off limits. Don't let anyone tell you that. But God spoke, and he was so gracious. He said, you can eat of any tree in the garden. There was one tree from which they could not eat, but he wasn't being tyrannical. Right? All the trees were open for business except one, and God is God, and he has the right to close down that tree. <laughs> the God who has the right to say what fruit they could eat is the God who has the right to say how we ought to use our bodies where our eyes have the right to go and where our eyes do not have the right to go. God has the right to say how we should use our tongues, what words are appropriate to speak, and in, in what way we ought to speak those words. He has the right to demand change, and, and his demands never lead to bondage. They never lead to tyranny. They always lead to freedom and to love so poison says, live for yourself, and then it whispers and die. The gospel says, die to yourself, and screams, and live. But our neighbors don't, don't know that because their minds have been poisoned by dismissing the gospel as tyrannical. The gospel says, go to Christ as you are. And that's the beautiful thing about Christianity. The gospel says, go to Christ as you are. Trust him and be freed from your sin. Follow him. Turn away from any action or desire that God says is wrong. Run away from it. Trust God's plan, his design, his blueprint for your life is better than your instincts. There is freedom in God and not tyranny. And we as Christians, I mean, it's incumbent upon us to model the freedom we have in Christ, like to live joyfully, to be able to communicate. Yeah, the Christian life is hard, and there are things that, that I used to want to do, and honestly, sometimes I a little bit want to do. But the longer I'm a Christian, the more I appreciate the value of obeying God, that it doesn't feel like I'm in bondage. More than ever, it feels like I'm free to be the man or woman that God made me to be. I mean, the world needs to see that. They need to know that, that your life is different than before you were saved. Obviously, you know, you still go shopping. You know, you still enjoy creation. But if they don't understand the freedom that's found in Christ, the gospel will seem less compelling to them because their minds have been poisoned with the idea that the gospel is tyrannical. Let me give you one more example of the way the, 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 the world poisons people's minds to the gospel. By denying everyone worships. By denying everyone worships. There is a poisonous lie being spread today, and it's a lie that says, Christians are strange because we worship someone or something outside of ourselves, right? If people think they're self-sufficient, they will never turn to Christ. 
never turn to Christ. They will always trust themselves. They'll reject the idea that they need God. They'll say, I can't give my life to Christ. I would be a fanatic. I can't be a worshiper, right? That would be wrong. Well, that's, that's poison. It's poisonous to think that you're not a worshiper. And I'm speaking here of, of unbelievers. It's just a poisonous thought to think you've not given your life to something. The truth is that everyone worships. And the, the, the amazing truth is you don't have to be a Christian to believe this. Right? Let me give you just an example of this. There is a, a writer by the name of Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan is not a believer. Uh, he's a, sort of a conservative columnist. Uh, he is... Uh, he came out as gay many, many years ago. A couple of years ago, writing for the New York Magazine, Sullivan wrote this. He said, everyone, so this is an unbeliever. I'm not giving you, like, this is not J.C. Ryle, all right? Not Charles Spurgeon. This is an unbeliever. This is, I would say this is common grace. This is an unbeliever actually having insight into what's true. Common grace. He said, everyone has a religion. In fact, it is in fact impossible not to have a religion if you are a human being. It is in our genes and has expressed itself in every culture, in every age, including our own secularized husk of a society. He continues, by religion, I mean something quite specific, a practice not a theory, a way of life that gives meaning. A meaning that cannot really be defended without recourse to some transcendent value, undying truth or God or gods, end quote. Again, Andrew Sullivan is not a believer. He's not a Christian, but he's right. Everyone has a religion. And unfortunately, Many of our neighbors, most of our neighbors, will deny this. Poison has seeped into the American mind, keeping our neighbors from thinking they were made to worship. But deep down, they know it. And this is what I love about evangelism. Like deep down, I know they are longing to worship. Because I know that they are worshiping. And I know that whatever they're worshiping is not satisfying them. I know that to be the case. Like Theologically, I know that it is not the case. You will not be satisfied by a mansion. It will not. I just know that. I think scores of unbelievers know that as well. I don't need to convince them of that. When you speak boldly for the Lord, you tell people what they know in their heart of hearts to be true. They were created for worship. And the question is, 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 is never, will you worship but it's always what or whom will you worship? And the only good answer is Christ. And so Paul and Barnabas, they, they stuck around for a long time in a city where people's minds were being poisoned to the gospel. And I can't guarantee that these three examples of poisoned minds is exactly what they're dealing with in Iconium, but I do think it's what we're dealing with today. These are the poisons of the world, and the only antidote is the gospel. The most loving thing that you will ever do is make the gospel clear to a dying world. Speak against anything that poisons minds to the truth of the gospel. Don't do it hatefully. 
Don't do it harshly. Don't do it condescendingly. But do it. If you love the world, you will challenge the poisons of the day. Now, we've seen the evangelism that works. We've seen the evangelists that love. Again, they loved by staying. They loved by faithfully teaching. I'm not implying, again, that any of you shouldn't ever move from this place, but it's a loving thing to do, to stay and to faithfully teach. And this leads to our final point, third, the evangel that divides. The evangel that divides. Look at verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Can you imagine sitting under the preaching of Paul and Barnabas? That would be amazing. I mean, wow. It must have been the best, most persuasive, most spirit-filled, the most powerful preaching in the history of the Christian church, assuming for a moment you know, that Jesus was like before the church. What preaching? Luke already reported in verse 1 that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So, man, they knew the poisons of the day. They loved. They had conviction. They had compassion. They had gospel clarity. They had it all. A number believed. They remained a long time in Iconium. Not only did they... I wish this has not happened to me. I don't know if it has happened to your pastor, but as they preached, God himself bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders. I'm waiting for that to happen. You know, I fear God can do whatever he wants. If he wants to accompany my sermon with signs and wonders, amen, have at it. But even the signs and wonders did not convince all the citizens of Iconian to come to saving faith. It wasn't enough. Look at verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Like, how could you be divided? There's signs and wonders. Like, miracles don't save people. It just doesn't work that way. It's never worked that way. Right? Oh, my goodness. The people of the city were divided. Now, they were divided. Here's the good news. God planted a church. Right? That's the good news. They were divided. Some believed. God planted a church. He didn't, though, remove all opposition. Many unbelieving Gentiles remained unbelieving Gentiles. Many unbelieving Jews remained unbelieving Jews. And they convinced the city. Somehow they convinced the city, the rulers of the city, they convinced them that Paul and Barnabas were toxic, right? that they were like nuclear waste that had to be disposed of. And they did everything they could to dispose of that waste. Verse 5, they sought to mistreat them and to stone them. And I just want you to, want you to I, don't wanna, um, I don't wanna be melodramatic, but I just maybe want you for a moment, just picture your, your, maybe your, your own elders and just being in an environment where the teaching espoused by your elders who were the face of the church led the surrounding community to see them as toxic waste that needed to be disposed of. Just to maybe put a little bit of flesh and bones on this ancient account. Paul and Barnabas had a decision to make. They could stay and die, or they could pack up and bring the gospel to another city. And they decided to move on, leaving a divided city behind them. 
I mentioned last night about my friend Nordine Benzit, who pastors in Algeria, and he was a school teacher in Algeria, which uh, in Algeria, being a school teacher is a quite prominent position. Um, I'm not saying it's not prominent here, but it's not prominent in the same way. Um, it's more like being like maybe the way we would think of a doctor or a college professor. That's what being a high school school teacher is like in Algeria. But the Lord saved Nordine from a Muslim background and a Muslim family. And eventually he planted a church in the city of Tiziazu, which is um, a city among the Berber people in northern Algeria, the people who have been in Algeria for just years and years and years. So these are the people around the Donatists. These would have been his people group. Um, and uh, he planted a church, and God, over the past decade or so, has really blessed the, the congregation. I've gotten to know Nordine over the years. I've never been able to go to Algeria because visas have not been granted. It's a very, it's one of the most persecuted countries in the world. A lot of persecuted countries you can still visit, but the Algerian, the Algerian government, they sniff out Christian visitors and they say no on, on the visa application. But uh, Nordine has been able to visit us, and so he's come to Mount Vernon for several years now. And at first, I admit, I was a little bit sheepish, like, who is this guy? What does he really believe? And what's going on there? And how's his theology? But the more I got to know him, the more we looked at the Bible together, the more I grew in respect, both for his love for the Word of God, his, his, his knowledge of the Word of God, uh, his prayer life, his theology, and uh, his desire to see Algeria reached for Christ. It is remarkable. A few years ago, Nordine and his wife, Sharifa, lost their daughter, uh, she, was, um, she was pushed off a balcony by, by Muslims who had been, uh, who had been uh, threatening Nordine. This is, this is just life as a Christian leader in Algeria. It's just nothing like what we've got here. The Constitution in Algeria allows for uh, freedom of religion, but it's a Muslim country, and those two things like, just don't mix. For years, the window, though, has been open for Nordine to preach and to share the gospel carefully on campus. They've got a building. But last week, the, the, the window closed. And uh, I have pictures on my phone of Nordine being, the, the, the doors to the church building being sealed and Nordine being escorted out by, uh, by police. His, as well as two other churches, prominent churches, so his is one of the three most prominent churches in all of Algeria, have been, have been shut down. Now, Nordine, for years and years, has had the opportunity. He could have left and gone to London. He could have gone to Canada. He could have gone to America. But he has stayed in Algeria because he loves the Algerian people and because they don't have a robust gospel witness. But what I'm preaching about today and I could be preaching about this in comfortable Atlanta, but I'm preaching it in comfortable Winston-Salem. I'm, I'm not trying to rile you up. I'm just trying to help you understand that, like, even today, the gospel divides. Like, there is a church full of people, honestly, just like you, that can, they can't come back next Saturday to meet together. They've got to now break up into their homes and that's like right now this is happening. And we shouldn't be surprised because God has always been dividing his creatures between believer and unbeliever. God has always been distinguishing the two. Think back to Cain and Abel. Abel offered a sacrifice to the Lord out of a sincere heart. Cain didn't. 
Cain killed his brother. Division. Think back to Noah. The whole earth is an absolute rebellion against God. Only Noah sought to honor the Lord with his life. No one followed Noah. His generation was divided. Thinking back to Abraham, following God meant leaving homeland, right? In his generation, the followers of God were divided. Think back to Israel. The whole history of Israel is you've got to be a separate people. You've got to be separate from the world in which you live, right? God divided. Jesus brought this teaching to Israel when he walked on the earth. One day he was surrounded by a large crowd and his mother and his brothers, they wanted to see him. His mom and his brothers, his family, they wanted to see Jesus. I mean, they're VIPs, right? Jesus says in Luke 8, 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus divided his own family between believers and unbelievers. Jesus said he came to bring division. Like, how's that for, like, evangelism? <laughs> my God came to divide. Luke 12, 53, they will be divided. Father against son and son against father, mother against daughter. Right? We're not in heaven. Right? The gospel forces you to take sides. Follow Christ fully or don't follow Christ, but there's no in-between. The gospel divides. And so when you look at Acts 14.4 and you read the people of the city were divided, these were real people with real names. These were real people, sons and fathers and mothers and daughters, people whose lives were turned upside down by the gospel. They were divided. The evangel divides. I know that you have partners in Erbil. Uh, and the, the Stillies and Mac. And so you probably know that a few months ago, uh, the uh, International Baptist Church of Rebeal sent out a prayer request to churches like us because a young man had come to faith in Christ and his uncle was threatening to kill him with a gun. Doesn't happen in Atlanta. But it happens today. We read the news in America and we hear about the pressure being put on churches and other religious institutions to abandon core convictions. We read this in the news and we may be surprised, but we shouldn't be surprised. The evangel divides in Erbil. It divides in Algeria and it divides in America. And some of you know this personally. Maybe not all of you, maybe not most of you, but some of you know that following Jesus has taken a toll in your family. I don't, again, I don't, I don't know you, but maybe there's, a, maybe there's a wife here without her husband because her husband just can't get on board the Jesus train. Maybe there's a husband here without his wife. Maybe there's a child here without your parents. Parents, maybe you're here without your kids. And you, you've got this turmoil. Am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to follow my family? And the Bible says you've got to follow Jesus. The evangel divides. I know that's a bit of a downer of a message. But it's the life that Paul lived, and it's where our text is, and we've got to own it so that we're ready when the division comes, not to be surprised, but to care and to have conviction and to, with gospel clarity, share the good news. All right, but I, I don't want to leave you with that. So as I close, I do want to leave you with a word of hope. I could just say, of course, you know, the, the gospel divides, but God planted a church in Iconium. There are still believers in Konya, Turkey, because Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel there. That's good. I want to say more, though. The evangel divides, but the evangel saves. 
When I lived in Washington, D.C., I met a man by the name of Randy. Randy came from a Jewish family, and God saved Randy during his sophomore year of college. When I met him, he worked for Crew, and uh, his job was to share the gospel with ambassadors on Embassy Row. So that was his parachurch ministry. Now, Randy's parents were not pleased when Randy became a Christian. Now, they didn't disown him, but for years he experienced that awkward Thanksgiving after awkward Thanksgiving. He'd invite his parents to Christian services, and they'd walk out. Uh, he'd give them Christian books, and they'd never read them. Twenty years went by. Twenty years of, of knowing quite personally that the evangel divided his family. And that's just a sad thing. And I know, you know, my family, they're not believers. And so it's, I'm, the evangel has divided my family. I'm running hard after Jesus, and they're not. For 20 years, Randy experienced that. One day, after a series of wonderful providential encounters, God saved his mom. And Randy tells this story in a book called Bringing the Gospel Home. So he wraps it up with these words. He says, watching my 75-year-old Jewish mother come to faith and somehow mysteriously having God involve me in the process has taught me numerous lessons. I've seen the value of patience, the significance of prayer, the marvel of grace, and the power of love. The evangel divides. We see that clearly in our passage, but don't ignore the fact that God planted a church in Iconium. Paul and Barnabas left a congregation there in that city, enraptured by the truth of the gospel. And when they left that city, they continued to preach the gospel, knowing that God would do the same, at least believing that God would do the same in the next city. And so I want to, I want to remind you, it's easy to follow the crowd. The world is full of people who want to be accepted, who want to fit in, who want to be popular. And I would just exhort you, don't follow the crowd. Follow Christ. There's no one like him. In the flesh, humble enough to lay aside his glory, kind enough to take our sin upon himself, merciful enough to absorb God's wrath in our place, gracious enough to give us his righteousness, no one is better than Christ. Nothing is more wonderful than Christ. Follow him. Rest in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the evangel. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We're thankful that we're at a church where we hear that every week. Even at a church where we exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that our hearts will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But we are so aware that increasingly we feel like and are in the minority. More and more, we, we recognize how our neighbors may pay lip service to the gospel, but don't really believe it. They don't live in light of it. And so many of our neighbors not really even paying lip service to the gospel at all. And Lord, we want to see you be at work in their lives. Would you help us be the best neighbors, not simply by mowing the grass, but by inviting them into our lives and by showing care, by showing respect, by showing conviction, by showing gospel clarity, by loving and 
faithfully being in their lives, even when it's inconvenient? And when the gospel divides, would you help us not to be discouraged or to be surprised, but to know that you are at work building your church against whom the gates of hell will not prevail? Would that simple reality, would you use that simple reality to fill our own hearts with joy as we place our confidence in you, our sovereign God, who has appointed so many to everlasting life? Help us to be faithful evangelists, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.